Christmas. Can you say that right now? Okay. I didn't know. Like, my wife thinks you can do Christmas before Thanksgiving. I don't know where she got that idea. She didn't get it from my family. Sorry, I'm having a little moment here. Seriously, it's so good to see everybody. Um, we, uh, we decorated this particular year to kind of have the idea of, and if you look up there, it's kind of family Christmas, mainly because as we work through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, in a very powerful way, Jesus is conveying upon us that those of us that are in Christ are part of a whole new family. We're part of something extremely special, not because of ourselves. Let's not, let's not kind of in any way think that we, this family is special because of us. This family is special because of Jesus. And so we're going to talk uh, for the next few weeks about this idea of, of, a, of a unique family that he's making, a, a kingdom. We're going to use that word as well to describe the character. But one of the things that we've been trying to do as we work through the Sermon on the Mount is to really have this way in which we're conveying that Jesus was doing something and he's doing something unique. And in this particular sermon, you start off at the very beginning in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 5, and there is no doubt about it, these beatitudes are giving the character of the kingdom that he's bringing. When he came and preached the kingdom of heaven, when he was talking about this new family that he was going to form, because he, he even talked about this idea of your father, which would have been, man, very, very kind of jarring to people to even hear it at that time. Is that he's, he said to them, in essence, I'm bringing something new and I'm bringing something that has a unique defined character to it. But it wasn't just that it was going to be a unique defined character. It was that this character was going to become a part of who we are as his followers. And it was going to change the world. It was going to impact the world. The way that we're going to see it today, and the way that I will talk about it is, is that he talked last week about these idea of good works, that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Today we're going to talk about in verse 20, this idea of righteousness and what does it mean and how does it come up to bear in our lives to be, begin to kind of in, it, to, to change the world. But one of the first things we have to understand from last week is, is that we have to embrace we are God's plan. Now, I, want you, I want to show you something just to kind of get things flowing so you can see this. Last week we talked about this idea in verses 13 and 14 that those of us that are in Christ, those of us that are his kingdom people, those that are part of his family, he says you are salt of the earth or you are the light of the world. Now if you remember right, I told you Paul's a committed southerner. And so actually what it should be read is y'all, but here's the key. The way that it's written within Greek is that it's y'all and only y'all. Like, I'll be honest with you, if I was going to start and launch something, I wouldn't start it and launch it with me. Now, I love all of you, but I probably wouldn't start it and launch it with you if I'm starting something that Jesus is talking about. In other words, he's saying to them, and you're going to see this when he tells the guys I'm leaving later on, is you are my plan. And so one of the things that we have to understand as we look through the Sermon on the Mount is he's beginning to help them to understand you all are my plan. You all are the ones that I'm going to carry out my mission through. And so one of the things we have to do is learn to embrace it. The other thing that we're going to have to kind of learn is that he's seeking to create a contrast. And you'll see this between God's people and those who aren't. You're going to, you're going to see this huge reality, the way that he's going to work back and forth through the different people that are involved in this. Specifically, next week, we're going to start looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. He's been talking, though, about Essenes. He's been talking about Zealots. He's been talking about Sadducees. And so he says, I want you to create a difference. 
See, in some ways, the Sadducees, they were able to accommodate. We wouldn't want to accommodate to culture. You have this way in which the Pharisees thought they had, and this is kind of a generalized way, arrived. There's a way in which the Essenes, man, they wanted to run away from it. And then you had the Zealots, man, they just wanted to fight. And he says to them, that's not how my kingdom's brought to bear. None of those ways in which the world is perceived, that's not how we're going to do it. Instead, you are going to become who you are. See, I love this, is that he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. There's something unique about you and different because I have invaded your life. There's something about you that you become the salt. You're a preservative to the world, the decay, the, the way in which this world is dying and falling apart. You're going to slow that down. But you're also the light. You're this group of people that are going to tell the truth in the midst of a very dark and decaying world. You're going to be the way in which people now are going to be called out of it. But we have to be honest with one another that while we are called to slow the decay and shine in the darkness, man, to be this type of people, we're going to have to come to the realization that as God's people and his plan, he talks about in verses 11 and 12, those who choose to go down this path, one of the things that's going to be key to them is that they are going to experience reviling. They're going to experience persecution. But then there's going to be other groups of people that are going to look at us and go, there it is. And in verse 16, it says, they will see our good works and they'll glorify our Father in heaven. And all of you in here today that know Jesus, just so you know this, at some point, you saw the good works. You saw the church in action. You saw the gospel come to life. You heard the gospel, and you are here today because a group of people decided to pass it on, who decided to pass it on, who decided to pass it on, and it landed into our lives. We are different because of it. Now, here's what I want to try to convince you all of today from this text. We are God's plan to impact the world right now. And by the way, there is no plan B. There is the only plan that he has, and he is not going to finish this plan until he is done. But he's going to lay out for us in verses 17 through 20, what does this plan look like? And here's what's so good about this plan. I am so glad he doesn't start his plan by starting with us. He starts with himself. Now watch what he's going to do to kind of help us understand this. So we got to kind of wrap our minds around it. We are God's plan. And this is what he says to them in verse 17. If you got a Bible, you can read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can catch it up on the screen. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, in some levels, that sounds like a strange way to start this thing. Why in the world is he talking about the law and abolishing the law and fulfilling the law? What does that have to do with us being God's plan in the world? Well, what was happening at this particular time is is that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, the scribes, and even the people at that time were seeing Jesus, like in Mark 1, 27, begin to preach, begin to live. And they were saying, man, who is this guy that speaks with such authority, that speaks with this way in which now he seems in some way like he's doing something new. And so in the back of their minds, they're kind of wondering, man, is, is his authority something where we don't need the Old Testament anymore? Are the prophets and the sacred law kind of set aside? Or it was, was he replacing them by kind of disregarding it? What did he believe about the law and the people and the prophets? What did he believe? Now, what Jesus is going to do is connect this to the bigger sense of the mission. 
Because in there, he did talk about the idea of the law of the prophets. Just so you understand that, that's kind of our understanding of the entire Old Testament. That's what he's speaking to. Whenever they say law and prophets, it's just all the writing. It's the law and those brought the law to bear. And they were asking the question, okay, Jesus, have you come to abolish it? And his giant answer is, oh, no. Oh, no. I haven't come to abolish this thing at all. And he says in there, I haven't come to do that. I've come to actually, he uses this word for fulfill. That idea of I have come is the idea of a mission. Look, I've come to do something big here, so I'm not setting it aside in the least. I am seeking instead to fulfill this. I'm seeking to, and this is the way that I would look at it, I'm not doing away with it, but everything that's in the law and the prophets, you don't understand this, they've all been pointing to me. Every last aspect of it. Every law, every prophet, every writer, whether they knew it or not, like in 1 Peter 1, they were trying to peer into the future to understand why are we writing these things, having no clue of this one that was supposed to come. And it's standing before them that very day, he was trying to help them get that all this stuff that you've been reading, that you've been trying to understand, I've come to fulfill it. That's bold. I love that because in this mission, what he's saying is, is he's not seeking in any way to abolish it. He's actually bringing it out. He's bringing it to its intended end. He is bringing it to its completion. He is bringing it in many ways to give it, and here's the word, its fullest meaning that it was intended. He is saying to them in this moment, I'm the one who's bringing to life the character of God. We, humanity was designed to be these image bearers. The law was the way in which we were to show the world who we are and to show off the character of God. And here I am. I'm the one who you've been looking for and longing for. See, at a time like this, that's why we preach Jesus. People don't know it, but that's what they're looking for. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, let me just say this, all the ways in which you're trying to find meaning in life, understanding in life, I'm here to tell you that in the same way 2,000 years ago Jesus said this, I'm the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of all that every human being has ever longed to know and understand and to follow. And he was standing before them that day and Paul said this about him, he said, Christ is the fulfillment of the law in Romans 10. He's the one that is now we've been trying to understand look into, that's him. Now let me just say this. This is why we have to know the Old Testament. We got to know it. Because every facet of the Old Testament is designed for us to go, oh, that points to Jesus, and that points to Jesus, and that points to Jesus. Everything is moving in that direction in such a way that not only does it point to Jesus, but one of the things that I'm going to show you is that this whole line keeps working its way even through Jesus to where we even become the fulfillment of the law. We play our part. Now, what I want to do is I just want to walk through some ways in which there are certain aspects of what Jesus that he came to do, he fulfilled. And there's other aspects in which he's still going to be fulfilling. So let me kind of create that out so that you can kind of see this, because I think this is pretty cool when you kind of look at it. Here's the first one. When Jesus Christ came, he came into a group of people that had a sacrificial system. 
And according to the writer of Hebrews 10, and when you look at like Colossians 2, is that everything about the Old Testament was this beautiful shadow that was pointing to something greater, in which in Hebrews 10, it says all of these things that we've longed for were fulfilled in one sacrifice through Jesus. No longer do you have to do bulls and goats over and over and over again. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that you can put your faith in. Now, what's so powerful about that is, is that he now is the one that not only can forgive from sin, but those who place their faith in him are forgiven from sin against the holy God. And by the way, amen. But not only was he this, not only is he this one that is now the one that the shadow was pointing towards, but he's also in many ways the temple. In John 2, right, they come up to Jesus and they're like pointing at the temple and Jesus says, I'll tell you what, you tear down that temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Well, everyone was like, what in the world? They're trying to figure it out. And all of a sudden the disciples remember after he died, he's like, oh, he said that because he wasn't referring to the temple. He was referring to himself. See, because when Jesus Christ died, the temple was torn, or the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom at the very end, entering, at, giving access to humanity now to know Jesus, meaning we no longer have to go to the temple, we come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we encounter the living God of all. He became the temple. Jesus became the full meaning of all the Old Testament truths. In Hebrews 1, it talks about how in the days of old, the prophets would write about this one to come. And then he says, but hey, let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ arrived, they never, no longer spoke through prophets. God spoke for himself through his son. It talks about it also when we look in John 1, this idea that Jesus is being this, this one who is the tent he came and he tented amongst us, but he was conveying something different, that he truly was that one that scripture had been speaking to. In 1 Peter 1.10, it talks about the prophets of old trying to look into the future to understand this Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the idea that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures, meaning that's the guy that the scriptures have been longing for. Every wonderful doctrine of the Old Testament, Jesus says to them, I fulfilled. But not only that, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was predicted. I love when Christian was going through all the prophecies that are working towards Jesus and helping us understand the way Jesus becomes the only answer to all those prophecies. Everything that was foretold about, Jesus would look and say, I either have fulfilled or I am fulfilling. And the last one that I think is so powerful he was a man, Galatians 4, 4, born under the law to demonstrate what the law was actually supposed to show. See, what you're going to see through the rest of Matthew is Jesus living amongst people. And the one thing that I've always found with people, whenever you read the Gospels, you're blown away by this person, Jesus. You're going to watch how every facet of the law he was able to keep, he was able to fulfill, he was able to live. He's the only one who has ever lived perfectly. And so when we say all this, we want us to know is that Jesus is the one who fulfilled. But now let me show you something, because there's something else here. Not only has Jesus brought things to completion, not only has he gave, given a fuller meaning, not only has he brought the intended to meaning, he's fulfilled. But look at this verse in verse 18. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not an iota, not a dot, not little parts of how, how, how the, the uh, English, or excuse me, Hebrew letters were written. Not a single little bit of it will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Now that little word for truly just means I'm gonna drop some truth on you. Just so you know, you can write that in. That's what it means. I'm gonna drop truth on you. And the whole idea is, is that I'm gonna keep fulfilling until I come back to rescue the world. Now the uniqueness of that though is, is that he is gonna leave and he's gonna leave us to engage meaning in a very powerful way. Not only did he fulfill and was he fulfilling the law, we're gonna fulfill the law. Now that's crazy. But the question we have to ask is, is how? So on one hand, he's endorsing the Old Testament. He's saying, no, this Old Testament thing, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. We need to know that. That's why we need to know the Old Testament. But in the other, he's informing them, but I'm leaving you to play your part in this. You're my plan. I was sitting down and thinking about that just this week, thinking, we as the church are his plan. Now, I was thinking about it from the standpoint is that I was leaving and I left two of my children in the house. And I said, hey, while I'm gone, I said to one of my children, hey, you're in charge. I'm leaving you in charge. Now, as a parent, to leave your child in charge is one of the scariest, (laughs) most concerning. You pray like crazy when you leave your children in charge of your house. See, I wouldn't leave me in charge, but Jesus has such an understanding of what he's about ready to do, and this is what we're gonna start to talk about. He's about ready to do something so powerful in his life that even by the time he gets to the end of John, he says, I know you've seen me do great things, but you all are gonna do greater things than me. I'm leaving you as ones who are to carry out the mission. Now, what's the mission? Well, the mission, you have to understand this, is different than the mission that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the scribes were doing. It was his plan all along that he had initiated from the very beginning in in God. He was the one that we were going to carry it out. But he says to them, look at that little statement in, in verse 18, I say to you. Now, what you're going to find in that statement, I say to you, it's contrasting those other leaders, those Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, and scribes. It's a different way. He's saying to them, those particular people, we both have a high view of the law and the prophets, but they in some way have mangled your understanding. And he's actually going to call them then, don't follow these people. And you look at that, I mean, look in that, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said. It was also said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. In other words, what he's saying, they say it this way, but then look at this. Verse 20, I tell you. Verse 22, I say to you. Verse 28, I say to you. Verse 32, I say to you. Verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 39, but I say to you. Verse 44, but I say to you. Jesus is saying, we are both trying to live in line with the Old Testament, but the leaders of that day, they've mangled it. And let me just say this, I think many times leaders don't mean to, but we mangle it. See, there's this kind of idea that's taught within the church. Let me just kind of say this to you so we can kind of, kind of grapple with even in, the, in our day. Many people have this belief that when Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again, and left, 
is that he completely did away with the law and we no longer live under the law, but we live under grace. Putting them at odds to each other. And I just want to make sure you get this. We do live by grace, but God has been giving grace since the very beginning, since he started. He didn't just start giving grace when Jesus Christ came. God has been gracious to his people throughout. Now, we may no longer be keeping the law like we did in the Old Testament, but now we are bringing fulfillment to the law. We are taking its intended meaning, and we're going to fill it up. We're going to bring it to its intended intent. We are going to be a group of people that when you look at the law, which is God's heart and character, we are going to live it in our time, in our place, in a way in which we're going to show it off to the world. Now, listen to me. Just go with me for a second, okay? Just go with me, because I'm not going to teach like a law-based righteousness or anything like that. But I want you to get this, we are fulfilling the law. But how are we fulfilling the law? Well, in some ways, these Pharisees, what they were doing, like in verse, you'll see this down in verse 19, they were relaxing the least of these commandments and teaching others to do the same. And those people will be called least in the kingdom. In other words, and here's the key word, they were relaxing. See, in, the old, in that particular time, what the Pharisees had done is they, they'd given kind of through different writings ways in which they're trying to describe the Old Testament. And one of the things they were doing is they were taking the permissions and making them more permissive, and they were taking the demands and making them less demanding. In other words, they were making it in such a way that they could keep it. Now, I was playing a game with one of my son or one of my kids the other day, and so we're playing a game back and forth, and I don't know how you are. I'm a parent. I don't let my kids win. There's only one way to teach kids how to be in this world, and I'm not going to teach them how to lose. You're going to learn how to win. And so we were playing a game, and he was just losing over and over again, and I was mocking it. No, I really wasn't. But finally, he looks at me, and we're kind of sitting there, and he goes, Dad, I think we should change the rules. <laughs> and I go, why, bud? He goes, well, so I can win. In an interesting way, this is exactly what was happening in this case. They took the law and they took the demands of it and made it less demanding. They took the permissions and made them more permissible. Why? Because they couldn't fulfill the law as God intended it. Now, here's the reason why. Because they didn't have the work of God like they needed within them to be able to fulfill it. In other words, they were trying to do something without the work of the Holy Spirit within their life. So not being able to fulfill it, they either dropped it or raised it, and they put it in a place where they could look like they were doing it. And by the way, the church still does it. I remember a quote once from Charles Swindoll. He said, isn't it sad, but probably 80% of the ministry that happens within the church would still keep going, even if the Holy Spirit was taken away from the church. He's like, no. From the very beginning, I intended you to walk with me, for me to be in you and present with you and bringing your life in such a way that you were able to model me to the world. Don't, don't lessen or, or raise certain things in order to be able to fulfill it. I've got something else for you. I've got something big that I'm seeking to do in your life. In fact, it's so big that I want you to know that there are people that will do it and there will be people that will teach it. Those are the ones that I've got here. I know you can bring it to its completed end. I know that you can give fuller meaning to it. I know that you can bring it to its intended meaning. But you cannot do it by yourself. I have to do it in you. I have to change you. See, if we do things apart from God, people might think that we're great, 
but at the end of it, it'll just be of no value. I want to be involved in a church that we go after those things that God has given us that demand that the Holy Spirit do a work in us. He talks about this idea in verse 20 of righteousness. He talks about this idea from the standpoint of not only that, that he's going to do a work of righteousness in it. So like in Romans 3, Paul says to those of us that are in Christ, we do not have a righteousness of our own. We have a righteousness that was given to us because we are in Christ. Do not think that you can get this righteousness that he's talking about anything through yourself. It is a work of God that talks about in Ephesians 2. This righteousness only, become, only comes through Jesus but also, don't you dare think that this righteousness doesn't transform us and cause us, 1 John 3, to practice righteousness. It changes us. It makes us different. It stirs us and causes us. It allows us to display the character of God as he intended all the way back from Genesis 1. There's some work in us that's going to do but the question is then off of that, how is it that we're going to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Because the people at that time would have been like, no way. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had put all the whatever, 260 and 340 or 360 and 240, I don't remember what it was, in such a way that they had put it together and they were like, oh, those particular groups of people, they are the ones who keep it. We're just the, the nobodies that can't do it. And he's saying to these nobodies, yes, you can Now, this exceeding, though, is very important because for the rest of the way through chapter 5, he's going to tell us how we exceed it. In the next section that we're going to look at next week, he brings up this idea of, of murder. And he says, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. If you do, you face judgment. He say, then says to him, but I've got something bigger. It's not just about my external, it's about your internal heart. He talks about adultery. Hey, I've heard you said, you know, if you have affairs with other people, that's a bad thing. He says, but I say to you, and he goes after the heart. Each one of those, he says, I get that they're talking about behavior modification. I'm talking about your heart. Because see, here's the thing. If God ever grasps our heart, he has all of us. See, God isn't just after our external performance alone. He is after our heart. You see this like in 1 Samuel 16, 7, right, where uh, Samuel was supposed to go and he was supposed to ordain the next leader and, he, and God says to him, but be careful. Don't you dare look at the external. Look at the what? The heart. In Jeremiah 31, the, the difference between those that, the, of that time and the time in which he was coming was is that now all of God's people would be these people where he would put them in law within them and he would write it in their hearts. In Ezekiel 36, he says to them, I will put my spirit in you. I'll take out your old heart of stone and put in a new heart of flesh and you will be these people that will be able to do what I've asked you to do. That's why in Matthew 22, when they came up to Jesus trying to trip him up, and they said, hey, which is the greatest command? Oh, and I love what Jesus did. He always did this. Well, he says to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest one. And love your neighbors yourself. And then he says this statement. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. God is after your heart. 
Now, the way that it gets exhibited is like in Romans 13 is Paul's kind of talking about this idea of, of how the law begins to work. And he says, look, and owe nothing except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled what? You filled up the law. You got the intent of it. The intent isn't just to go through the exercise of outer conformity, but the inward change so that what comes out of us is that we're made different and able to do what we're supposed to do. In verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. He's after the heart. John talks about it this way. He says, by this is evident the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one, look how he connects it, nor is the one that does not love his brother. Righteousness that's been done within us exhibits itself in this radical love. Now listen to me, this is very important. We don't just go fulfill love however we want it. I think some ways, man, love has become this weird term that we kind of, it's whatever I want it to be. Love is not whatever I want it to be. Love is whatever scripture defines it as. Jesus is going to take each of the laws. He's going to take commandment six, commandment seven. He's going to work through the various laws and he's going to show them how within that time he had called them to live. So scripture guides how we love people. We don't just get to come up with our own way to love people. He shows us what it means to love people. But in this, and this is what's so important, he shows them how love would happen in that time, how love would happen in his time, And now we have to learn how is it that love happens in our time? How is it that we bring the character, those beatitudes of God to life? How is it that we start to engage within the culture that we live in so that people might see the love of God? How do we display God's character? What does our time look like? And for each of us, we're in different scenarios, aren't we? Some of you, it's within your job. I've been praying for probably about three or four of you. Some of you have bosses and coworkers that are not easy to love. I mean, if you work at Cornerstone, you have an incredible boss. (laughs) So, you know, I feel bad for all those other places that don't have the incredible boss that's at Cornerstone. (laughs) Lightning might strike here pretty quick, so I gotta get out of the way. But no, when we're at this workplace, we're trying to figure out, okay, Lord, If you've called me to radically love you with all my heart, soul, and mind, and to love my neighbors, myself, what does this look like in my workplace? What does this look like within my community? What does it look like with my neighbors that live around me? What does it look like in my family? Oh, you ever found sometimes those are the hardest people to love? I mean, not obviously not you, but me, it's hard to love. And we just all got to experience it at Thanksgiving. And you know everybody's got that crazy rant of your uncle that's not easy to love. But Jesus, the rest of the way through Matthew, is going to show us, I want you to see how to love. To a woman at a well, he went and loved a woman that was just sexually promiscuous from the beginning to end. In John 3, he went and loved probably the greatest of all the scholars at that time. He even loved a rich young ruler by making sure that rich young ruler understood that he really hadn't kept the heart of the law and that guy fled away, but Jesus loved even that one that rejected him. Jesus was this perfect model of what it meant to bring these things to life. And that's why we have to know the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand how do we do this in our time? 
This is what we're going to talk about when we're the rest of the way through, through Matthew 5 is how do you do this. So let me, just, let me just do this really quickly. Let me show you this. Here's what is still fulfilling in what we're going to put together. Jesus is the beginning of all God's people. Okay, that's important. Not just a few of God's people, but all God's people being compelled and constrained internally to love God and people rightly. We are his plan. We're his plan. Now let's look through this. How do we do it? How in the world do we pull this off? And let me just give you a few things as we go and we'll, we'll apply them more as we get to the, to the rest of the weeks. But if you're like me, you're wondering, gosh, okay, this, this loving people is a very difficult thing. How do we do it? Well, we fulfill it, the law. We, we, we bring the law to life through radical love because we've been made righteous. Just understand this. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you cannot do this like Jesus called you to because you have to experience the work of new birth, the work of regeneration, the work of God transforming your life. In 1 John 4, 19, it says we love because why? He first loved us. In 1 Peter 1.22, it talks about this radical love in 1 Peter 1.22 through 23, but it came because God has purified our souls. And even I love this in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, we have tasted and seen that God is good. You will never be able to love like God has called you to till you have tasted and seen that God truly is good. The other part of it, we fulfill the law through radical love because we regularly renew our belief that we possess a new heart. We forget this. Sure, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 is there, but Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. And I love this verse. Listen to it. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this one thing, that he has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him whose sake they died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, look at that, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me just look at all of you out there. If you are in Christ, you are new. You are new. You are different. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Don't you ever think that you can't do it because to say that you can't do it is to say that our God is not sufficient enough. And our God, let me tell you, is sufficient. We can love like he's called us to love. Not only that, but we fulfill the law through radical love because we regularly remember, repent, and redo. See, one of the things that I was thinking about this week is that I do have to remember, that's what that's talking about in that context, to remind myself of, of who I am in Jesus Christ. But let's be honest, we don't succeed at this very often. So just for fun this last week, I started remembering all the ways I failed at this. I quit counting on Monday. I just was constantly battling loving people, and that was just the people that were around me. So part of it is, is when I'm off, I tell God. That's what repentance is. God, that's right. You have created me to be different. I need to remember that. But God, let's be honest. I'm not doing it like I should. And then what does he say to do? He says, do the works you did at first. 
Go back and get that rhythm of what it means to be the character people of God. Go back into it. Well, what if I fail again? Well, then you remember and you repent and you redo. But what if I fail again? Then you remember and you repent and you redo. Now, everybody say it with me. Remember, repent, one more time. Because you are going to fail. Everybody get that? The next thing is, how do we fulfill this radical love? We do it because we keep in step with the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, he talks about this idea of keep in step with the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's powerful. See, in a weird way, what we tend to do is after we get kind of, we feel like we're not able to do it, we try to then create ways for us to be able to do it. We're going to talk about this idea of lust in a little bit. And we, and we have walked through all kinds of ways, and especially living in a sex-drived culture like we live in. People have tried everything to get away from, from especially like just sexual lust. And so we've thrown our computers in bathtubs. We've, we've done radical things to try to figure it out. And there's even some people that have gone so far as to eliminate sex drive. And I'll just leave it at that because we got kids in here. But the idea is though, is you don't just change the externals. You change the what? Hearts. By keeping in step with the Spirit is that's where we gain the very heart of God. We walk with Him and know Him and we see Him for who He is. We taste again and see that He is good. We see His greatness and His grandness as He walks us through all kinds of things. That's keeping in step with the Spirit and the fruit of that is love. You keep in step with the Spirit, and I promise you, you will not be able to help but love people. Because that is who you are. Also, the way it's going to come out is you're going to start to see yourself being patient and kind. Not envying or boasting, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on your own way, not irritable or resentful, that's none of us. Not rejoice at doing the wrongdoing, but rejoicing with truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Love never ends. In other words, we'll convey an accurate picture of God to the world. That's why Paul said, love does no wrong to your neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. It's not so much the keeping of it, it's that God's people fulfill it. We show the intent of God. We bring to life what it was supposed to look like because God's spirit has done a work within us and he's changed us. That's what he means in this whole idea of unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He was not trying to get into a game in which we're trying to figure out who does it better. He was talking about something of kind. He was saying to them, the difference, the reason that you're gonna be able to exceed is not because of you, but who is in you. I'm going to come in. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. My spirit is going to write the commandments on you. The reason you're going to exceed that is because of who I am and who I am in you. And I think at any other time right now that the church, including Cornerstone, needs this, we need to renew not our fervency to go out and scream and yell at the world, not our fervency to go get involved in different things that are out there first and foremost. We need to get out there. We need to get involved. 
but we need first and foremost is the work of God in our hearts to transform us and make us different. Not so that we go out and act like we love God, but so that we passionately love God within our hearts so that it might spill over into a world that's not desperate for us to just come out and be good people, but is desperate to see the power of God in the life of his church. We need to renew again just our commitment to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And then allow that to spill over and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's how we impact the world. Now, if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, let me just say this to you. Today is the day to bend your knee to the king. I promise you, you bend your knee to this king and he will change you from the inside out. Not, not, not all at once, but he will change you. If you would like to talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk about how it is that you can be made righteous so that you might now practice righteousness that God has designed you to be. You might become the intent of what he meant. But here's the second thing. For those of you that are here at Cornerstone, last week I was going to pick up my son and so I left a little bit early. He goes to school over in the valley and I, I drove up and I, I've driven up before kind of where Rockadine, I don't know if you know where Black Canyon, is that what it's called? And I just wanted to look over our city. And I just got up on that big perch and I'm looking over Simi Valley, just all the different houses, all those houses that represent the people down below us. And that word just came to my mind. We are God's plan to impact Simi Valley, the West San Fernando Valley, Thousand Oaks, Moore Park, wherever you might live. We are God's plan. There is no other plan. There is no plan B. There are other great, wonderful churches in this area that love Jesus like we do. But in this Christmas season, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, of, of Jesus bringing us into his kingdom, of making us a part of his family, what I want us to renew as a church is a heart that we will not shirk our role that we are called to play and be the plan of Jesus in Simi Valley. Not by just having a rah-rah right now, we're like, ah, let's go get Simi Valley. No by committing ourselves to being and making disciples of King Jesus, ones who have been internally transformed by the work of God in our lives and helping others to experience that same internal transformation so that we might display the greatness of God into our world, so that we might be salt, so that we might be light, so that we might stop the decay that's happening in our area, that we might be truth into this world. That's the commitment I would love us to start making as we move towards the new year. There is no better time than right now. It starts in your homes with your families. It moves its way out into our neighborhoods. But it flows from us as a group of people, all the other churches that love Jesus. That's the commitment I want to make. And that's why we're going to teach that we're teaching through. The other thing is, let me say this as I finish. As part of this family, those of you that are part of the Cornerstone family, let me reiterate this. I love you all. I love this church. And from my heart of love, 
Let's go. Let's be the people that God intended us to be. Let's be that salt and light. Let's learn more about what it looks like to look at scripture and bring that out. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. May we be your people. May we be the salt. May we be the light. Father, not because we're trying to modify our behavior, trying to make these things happen. But most importantly, Father, because from that changed life, that new heart, oh, Father, would we bend the knee to experience your work within us. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.